Nothing you hear in this program constitutes investment advice. It is an expression of opinion only. This is Frisbees, Bulls and Bears. Talking money and markets. What's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Frisbees, Bulls and Bears with Dominic Frisbee. Hello and welcome to Frisbee's Bulls and Bears with me, Dominic Frisbee. A reminder that you can subscribe to the show via email by clicking on the subscribe via email button on the left-hand side of your screen. And you can also like us on Facebook. In today's program, I'm talking to Guy Thomas, once a research actuary, now a private investor. Guy is the author of a new book called Free Capital, How 12 Private Investors Made Millions in the Stock Market. It's very much an English version of, of the Jack Schwager classic Market Wizards, and, and I've just finished reading it. And there are 12 fascinating and interesting stories, and I would say it's a, a must-read, really, for anyone who's in, interested in, in investing in, in any form. So, Guy, um, why don't we kick off? Firstly, congratulations on the book, and um, secondly, um, why don't we kick off by you telling us a bit about it, how it got started, and, and then let's go from there. Okay, Dominic, that, that sounds uh, great. Thank you. Uh, well, the book really is the culmination of a process starting about 15 years ago. Uh, I haven't actually been writing 15 years, but I have wanted to read a book like this for 15 years. Uh, I've read the books like Market Wizards, which you mentioned a moment ago, uh, and those books are inspirational, but I've always felt there's a large gap between what those books describe and the sort of the scale of my own activities. And so I wanted to read a book about more realistic role models, people just quietly doing their own thing uh, in the UK market. Uh, and I, I hoped for some years that somebody else would write such a book, uh, but uh, nobody did. Uh, and I started to uh, to meet um, the sort of people I wanted to profile um, myself through my own investing activities. And so eventually, a couple of years ago, I said, OK, I will try and write this book myself. Uh, and that's what I've uh, had done over the uh, the past 18 months or so. Um, yeah, and I, I, that's just picking up on what you said there. You, you described it as it, it is very much inspirational, but also, I mean, what these people achieve is 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 very possible. It's very doable. They're not billionaires or anything like that. It's you know they're they're guys who are, who are clever. And what, one of the things that struck me is they they've each got their own strategy. So what, why don't you outline some of the the strategies that the various investors have used? Okay, well, I can uh, I can sort of uh, sketch the the range of strategies, but I would just like to pick up first on uh, one other um, point you made there uh, that these guys are sort of uh, very um, sort of it's very feasible um, to sort of to to emulate them. Uh, I did try to sort of choose the people in the book so that 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 was the case for a sort of a wide variety of potential readers and. In general terms, uh, if you look at the 12 people in the book, around a third are ex-city professionals, which is sort of a background you might expect in this this sort of area. Uh, but one third are um, other degree educated professionals, and a final third uh, left school at or before 18. Uh, so there's certainly a wide range of um, sort of um, role there and biographies which people 
uh, can sort of hopefully um, latch on to as something related to their own experience. Uh, yeah, very, very, very interesting. In other words, you can you can have been anything in order and still do this. Um, yes, very much so, and uh, not only anything in the sort of the dimensions I've described, but in in sort of many other dimensions as, as well, which uh, I hope sort of um, uh, comes out in the in, in the book. Um, just to, just to answer, or just to sketch and answer the second part of your um, your question, sort of the, the range of uh, of strategies. Uh, I did sort of try to group the strategies in the book. Um, the the two main groupings. Uh, are the, um, the the distinction between people who um, start thinking uh, about individual companies or investments and uh, sort of build up um, from um, that small picture um, to the the overall um, sort of picture, uh, and I call those surveyors um, in the sense of sort of looking at individual um, buildings and then um, building up a bigger picture from that. Uh, the the converse category to that. Uh, the people who look uh, first at um, markets uh, and work down to individual companies, they look at sort of market themes and, uh, uh, and macroeconomic factors, and I call those um, geographers, um, partly because one of them actually was a former professional geographer, uh, and he very much used the sort of um, mentality that he um, developed in that field in, in his investing. Um, there are other people who don't quite fit those categories. There's um, a day trader and chartist, uh, and there are a couple of people who I uh, I had to call eclectics because I couldn't really um, uh, fit them into any of my my neat boxes. Um, so that there is uh, a very wide range of uh, of approaches there. Um, yeah, it, I, I like the idea that that some people make macro calls and then they make their decisions based on that, and then others make make micro calls basically and make their decisions on that i mean it's it's it couldn't be more uh, oppositional um yes uh, these people uh, sort of do approach the problem from opposite ends as it were and they place um sort of very different emphasis on uh on sort of macro and versus micro factors uh, but but again the point which uh, uh which which comes out is that this this sort of the choice of strategy is very much bound up with people's background, um, not just the background in terms I was mentioning earlier about whether you're city or school leaver or, um, or other sort of uh, professional, but also the more specific background. Um, for example, uh, one of the people uh, who takes a, a top-down view, the sort of the geographer's view, uh, is very into um, the psychology of market cycles. Uh, and part of his background is indeed that he um, he majored in psychology in his um, in his degree um, sort of 30 years ago, uh, and with most of them, there is that sort of connection between um, either their educational background or their professional background or something that's happened in their lives and the approach they've ended up with. And again, I hope the biographical format brings out that connection and lets people sort of see um, someone in the book, hopefully, who. Um, they can see themselves as in five or ten years' time. That's yeah. the that's the aim. There are actually a couple of people in the book who I very much like to meet. <laughs> but um, uh, the let's let's um, let's let me ask you uh, how rich uh, are say the two or three richest people that you interviewed, and how long did it take them to get that rich? The two or three richest um, have. Ten, tens of millions. 
they are they are the people I can be um, probably more sure than most people in the book about just how rich they are because a lot of the information is public um, in terms of large stakes in companies. You know, if you've got if you've got five percent or ten percent of a company, that um, has to be announced. Mm-hmm. Um, as for how long they took, um, between twenty and thirty years, I guess. Uh, one of them was an investor at the age of 14. Um, so he was a fairly early starter. That's not not true, incidentally, of everyone in the book. But he, he was uh, he was an early starter. Uh, and uh, that person, who, who I can name because he's, he's named in the book, uh, Peter Gillenhammer, a Swedish value investor, uh, apart from being, I'm sure, the richest person in the book, um, he's also the only one um, who has, um, uh, as I put it, uh, returned to go twice. Um, that is, he went to zero twice along the way in the past uh, 20 or 30 years. Uh, so he has an interesting story. Uh, mm. Not necessarily to be emulated in all its uh, ups and downs, but uh, uh, it's an interesting story. Yeah. Um, who did you most admire of all the people you interviewed and why? That's a slightly tricky question. Uh, I I will answer it in sort of one format and then then comment on why the um, the answer might not be definitive. Um, the the investor whose um, style I most envy and would like to emulate um, is Owen, the um, the closed end funds activist. Um, this is a guy who takes large stakes in um, closed-end funds, investment trusts, or funds of hedge funds, and then he agitates um, for the management to do something uh, to reduce the discount on the on the fund. Uh, just to explain there, it's quite common for um, investment trusts uh, for the shares to trade at a discount to the uh, net asset value of the underlying assets. Uh, and if you can persuade the management to um, to buy back shares or to um, liquid, liquidate the trust or do something else um, to close that discount. Then um, you can uh, sort of profit from that, and that's that, that's what uh, Owen does. He takes these large stakes when they're at a large discount, and then he agitates. Um, and he has a professional background of doing this. Uh, he did this in the city, and that is it for for his own account. Uh, I envy his style because it's very time efficient. Um, he's van- managing a large amount of money in the tens of millions, I think, uh, and uh, he doesn't seem to spend as much time as the other people in the book um, following markets sort of on a daily basis, every sort of every piece of news at 7 o'clock in the morning, etc. Now, some people in the book do get their kicks from that. They, they enjoy that process, and that sort of did come across very clearly. But uh, if you wanted a, a sort of a life where... You were very successful and also had time to play golf and um, look after your kids and all those sorts of things. Then Owen style uh, is the, um, the 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 most efficient style, and I'd like to emulate that. Now, I did say that the answer was sort of slightly qualified. Um, the qualification is that that style um, involves a, a certain degree of confrontation. Yeah, ruffling feathers. Uh, with, I was going to say. Yeah, it's roughly feathers, and it involves confrontation. And Owen is um, a very sort of um, calm and 
resolute individual uh, who doesn't seem to have any sort of difficulty with that process. Uh, I suspect I would find that process uh, more stressful uh, and uh, despite this sort of the time, his apparent time efficiency, I suspect I would find um, sort of the, the stress of that process would mean that I wouldn't enjoy doing it. Uh, but if I just wanted to achieve maximum results in minimum time, um, his would be the, um, the approach to follow. I was, a, I was a big admirer of the character from memory. I think his name was Nigel, who was... Um, or let me just rephrase that question, actually. There, we talked about the two extremes from the macro to the micro. Um, one of the other um, uh, extremes that I noticed is there was there one character who I think is this chap called Nigel, who you described as the networker, who um, you know goes out and meets hundreds and hundreds of people. Uh, to the other extreme, where there is one chap who stays in his office and never meets anyone. Um, you know, so there's the isolated and the extremely social. Uh, yes, there is a very wide range on, on that um, dimension as, as well. Um, the, the, the networker, um, he's actually labelled Eric, um, but I do know the person you're, you're referring uh, to. Eric, you're uh, absolutely right. The chap, he's got eight kids or something. The chap with eight kids is Eric, uh, yes, uh, who is uh, a sort of a very much a networker, uh, speaks to company directors um, every day, um, goes to 50 AGMs every year. Uh, I have seen him in, a, in action at these AGMs myself, uh, and it's um, it's it's a quite remarkable sort of um, I was going to say act, um, perhaps I should say process. Um, Eric turns up at these AG, AGMs and asks all these um, sort of innocent questions, uh, a bit like a sort of a, a polite but rather persistent child, uh, and I suspect many directors feel slightly um, bemused, perhaps irritated by the process, but Eric is such a nice guy that they, that they don't tend to say no, and they often um, they, they tell him quite a lot. Uh, and whilst the, the, the questions he's asking always appear almost naive, there's an awful lot going on underneath, which I have become aware of by you know, chatting to Eric after the meeting, uh, and he will say, when I asked such and such a question, did you see the finance director um, put his arm on the chief executive to stop him answering? And no, I didn't see that. I didn't notice any of it. But Eric notices all these things, uh, notices his tone of voice, uh, notices um, uh, the way people, the body language, um, all those things he gets his information and his edge from. Um, so that's one extreme. Yeah, and it pretends yes. to be bumbling when, when, he, when in fact he isn't. Yes, and, exactly. and, and and what kind of levels? I mean, he he has eight kids to support, and he needs to earn something like a hundred grand a what was it, ten grand a month? He needs just to to pay for all their school fees and so on. What, yeah, what kind of that, levels that had he reached? Um, well, um, I think he's probably um, in between the um, the people we were speaking of earlier with the tens of millions and the sort of the one million threshold for people um, being included in the book. Uh, I think Eric has not accumulated um, sort of one of the larger sums because he does have these very substantial spending needs of you know, 10,000 cash in hand as a minimum um, each month for his, his very large family. Uh, and and, and he takes large stakes in companies and, and then uh, in companies that he thinks are undervalued and he makes his decisions based on what he thinks are the CEOs. Is, is that his kind of method? Um, that sort of thing, yes. But, but, but basing his 
judgments of the CEOs very much on meeting them and interacting with them rather than um, just sitting in a room uh, reading the numbers, which um, some of the other people in the book um, do. Um, so it's a very sort of it's a very um, personal sort of approach, uh, which um, again it's this background which comes through Eric um, as p- part of his background. Uh, well, he ran a business, um, a property business with 800 tenants, so that obviously involved a lot of, sort of dealing with uh, dealing with people in one context. But he was also, and this sort of was really quite striking, uh, he was for many years a Samaritan volunteer, you know, answering the phones, listening to people, um, calling up in distress, um, noting a great deal from tone of voice, um, when to um, stay silent, uh, when to ask a question, uh, you know, when not to ask a question. Um, so he's really using those skills uh, in a very different context and for a very different purpose. Uh, yeah, very good. He sounds a bit like Darren Brown or someone almost. Yeah, yeah, that, 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 and that does seem to work, um, seem to work very well for him. Um, uh, but as I, as I said you know, a moment ago, there are other people in the book who deliberately avoid speaking to um, company management, in particular a bill um, uh, in the chapter um, subtitled Just the Facts, uh, that tries to avoid speaking to management uh, because his view is that you always get spun a line. Uh, and so he just wants to um, sort of to sift the no, the numbers and facts and uh, make his decisions on the basis of uh, the absence of sort of personal colour rather than uh, sort of mainly on personal colour as, as Eric does. So it's, it's sort of the, the, the complete opposite approach of Eric. Uh, but they're both um, pretty successful, and they interesting. Interestingly, they do actually know each other. <laughs> very good well Guy um, can we expect another book uh, you probably can when I've recovered the process is quite sort of quite grueling but uh, uh, I think the, the enjoyable part is the interviewing people and asking nosy questions for four or five hours um, the slightly harder part is the writing and polishing um, so maybe one day Okay. Well, um, the book is called Free Capital, How 12 Private Investors Made Millions in the Stock Market. It's by Guy Thomas. It's published by Harriman House. And uh, I'll post a link to Amazon and Play on the, uh, on the front page of, the, uh, of this radio show. And Guy, um, is there a website for the book or anything like that or a website that you have that uh, people can find out more about it? Uh, I do have a website, and um, really the, the easiest way to, um, to for people to find that um, is, I'm afraid, our friend Google. Just Google Guy Thomas Free Capital, and you will you will find me. Excellent uh, stuff. Well, Guy, um, it's been a, a real pleasure, and and it's full of, like I say, inspirational stories and 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 stories that are very achievable. Um, once again, let's let me before I close, Guy. Uh, I know you're more of a, a, a bottom, a, a micro. You look at individual companies rather than making macro economic calls. Let me just uh, take the conversation out a little bit. Are you kind of generally bullish at the moment? Are you bearish? Do you have a, any companies you like? Let, let's just talk markets ourselves for a second. Okay, um, I do not have a market view. Uh, and that is a matter of policy rather than just um, sort of the present um, situation. Um, you're, you're correct that I am a bottom-up sort of guy. I look at um, individual companies and sort of form my views on those. 
uh, I almost almost always avoid having a a sort of a general market view. So um, I'm a no on that question. Um, as the companies I I like, um, well, um, it's it's fairly easy for people to find small companies that I'm uh, invested in and uh, and over three percent. Um, one which has attracted quite a bit of attention recently is Galleon Holdings. And that's um, AIM listed, um, Epic uh, G O N, uh, and um, they have a, a very fast-growing um, business uh, in uh, gaming in China. Uh, that is a high-risk punt. Uh, these, these punts, which are that disclose because I'm over three percent, tend to attract most attention. Um, they're not necessarily my largest um, holdings; um, they're my um, adventurous holdings. Uh, but I do think that one is interesting and certainly one worth looking at at the uh, at the present time. Excellent stuff. Um, you, we have a lot of people who are very interested in mining stocks who listen to this show. You don't like junior mining companies. Why don't you tell us why? Uh, that's correct. Um, the difficulty I have with junior mining companies, or really with any mining companies, um, is that I'm always looking for um, some information uh, or some edge where I can have a better insight or superior insight to my counterparties in the market, uh, the people I trade with. I am always very conscious when I trade there is somebody else on the other side of the trade who also thinks um, he's getting the better of it. Uh, one of us is, um, is going to be wrong. There are small exceptions to that, but that's sort of a, a, a general description of the, um, sort of the hardness of the problem. Um, with junior mining, uh, or with the whole field of mining, I always feel that I, I don't understand um, all the ins and outs of the, you know, the, geo the ge geological aspects. Um, even if I learned a lot more, I probably still wouldn't understand them. So I prefer to stick to things where I do have enough understanding to have um, a superior view to the people I'm dealing with. And uh, perhaps if I had a geology background, I would have that in mining. Um, but that's not my not my actual background. So it's it's very much uh, an information-based sort of rationale rather than a sort of a a doom and gloom about the mining sector rationale. I have no view on the on the prospects of the mining sector, I just find it difficult to say that I have a superior view on any single company. Do you like tech stocks? Is that a sector you like? Um, sometimes I will buy tech stocks. Um, again, it's not really predicated on a sector view. It is predicated on my feeling I have some um, superior insight into the individual company. Um, I do actually, uh, and I don't know if you want to put this in, in your uh, in your show, but I do have a uh, large stake in um, in ADBFN, the, the bulletin board, yeah. uh, which uh, I, I I think is is interesting because of the um, the network property uh, uh, when they become dominant in a particular market, and they're very dominant, for example, in Brazil. Not many people know that, uh, but when they become the dominant player in a particular market. Uh, it's self-reinforcing because once one bulletin board is dominant, everyone has to use it. Uh, and so whilst they they haven't made much money yet in uh, the first 10 years of their existence, they do have a very interesting clientele. 
Um, they have people like the people in my book, you know, staring at the bulletin board or you know, um, poking around the bulletin board all day, and that's a very interesting clientele, um, which they may one day um, find a way of making money off. Absolutely. Um, the, 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 the thing I like about ADVFN, um, wh- wh- it, where's that listed? Is that a name stock? It's a name stock, yes. And what's the ticker symbol for that? AFN. AFN. Um, is just, I mean, I, I don't know how you, how you value it, but... For example, on the the big threads, for example, there's a gold thread that's very widely read. If you you can kind of go back five years and read people's posts, and it's such a good kind of historical resource, and you can see what individuals were saying, what market sentiment was, how what the kind of things that people say and think when the markets are uh, in, say, when markets are collapsing, these is this is the kind of mentality that people have, and when markets are booming, these are the kind of things that they say. You know, it's it's very good. Uh, just as a as a kind of study, if you like, uh, how you put a value on that, I have no idea. Yes, yeah, so that 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 is um, that aspect is is certainly valuable, and that's something that um, going back to my book, which um, Nigel mentioned, sort of using bulletin boards as sort of as a gauge of sentiment. Uh, it does also have great value, though, for individual companies. Um, there are companies I I know of um, which have eventually proven to be frauds. And the um, the nature of the fraud was actually exposed on ADVFN in quite forensic detail many months before um, that it became known to the market that the company was um, was in some way fraudulent. Um, so whilst there's a lot of sort of clowning around on ADVFN, uh, it's a big mistake to think that clowning around is all there is. There are some very serious people there, uh, and some of what they write is very well worth reading. Absolutely, and not just ADVFN, Stockhouse, and other ones. I've I've made such good contacts through bulletin boards, and uh, and you know there are some people's insights that I use. I would if somebody likes something, I'll buy it, and if somebody else likes something, that's often good reason to sell it. You know, there's good contrarian indicators posting there as well. Yes, there there are lots of ways in which the boards are, are valuable, and that again I hope comes across in in my book that. Um, some, you know, a couple of the people have made tens of thousands of posts on bulletin boards. Um, others don't post very much, but they read an awful lot. Um, so um, certainly that, that has transformed the, the situation of private investors for the better in the past 10 or 15 years. You know, it, 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 it has. And, and just continuing this, the, the, the Internet has kind of forced reform on the financial services industry in that because so much information has become freely available, it's, it's hard for you know, many in the financial services industry to, to charge, to, to, to levy such huge charges on their services. Um, but it's also kind of empowered the private investor because, you know, a private investors, what they say about a company on a bulletin board, particularly a small cap, can can really affect affect the company. And, and you know, it's it's a very much an empowering thing. And, and, and I think that's, you know, that's part of its strength. Yes, uh, that's absolutely right. It's really hard to overstate the, the difference which um, the Internet has made for private investors over the past 15 years. Um, basically, anyone who wasn't trading 15 years ago has no idea how lucky they are with the present sort of um, sort of access to information, uh, low commissions, ability to short sell. Um, all these things are great improvements on the situation of a private investor. 
uh, and it's, it's mainly down to technology rather than any other sort of um, will or political change. It's, it's just technology. Absolutely. Well, Guy Thomas, once again, it's been a, a real pleasure talking to you, and, and thank you very much. And uh, uh, I, I recommend people buy your book. Okay, thank you. My pleasure. Frisbee's Bulls and Bears is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our forum at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com. To join our mailing list so you can be updated as soon as a new show is posted, please email info at dominicfrisbee.net or simply subscribe through iTunes. 